0: As our beginning portion of our prayer, to read a couple of verses from Psalm 116. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I shall call upon Him as long as I live. Father, we call upon the one who hears, the one who always has time to listen to our cries And, Father, we first of all would offer to You praise. We know that our voices and our tongues cannot even express accurately the praise and the glory that is due to Your name. And yet, Father, we have not even seen or experienced the extent of that glory in this life. And so, Father, we would bow before You today. Forgive us where we so often uh, do not bend our knees before You and go in our own way, even as we'll see in, in the passages this morning. And Father, I, I'm grateful that You are merciful and that You call us to repentance and to return to fellowship. And so I pray that this will be a pattern of our lives, and more and more our, our lives will be fitted into the plan that You have set before us. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your presence here this morning. And trust that You will empower the Word as it is taught, In every venue on this uh, property this morning to the glory of your name Amen you'll turn to the ninth chapter of the book of Joshua as we're racing through this book of Joshua we'll begin with the first verse of the ninth chapter I'd like to read the first two verses this morning first and then we'll go on from there now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, or Shephalah, and on the coast of the great sea, of course, the Mediterranean, uh, toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard of it, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. First of all, I can say that that's the scene we face in the spiritual realm. Whenever you purpose to do the will of God, the enemy is gathering his forces and preparing to fight against you. And of course, as it will be true for Joshua, if we do that fight in our strength, woe be unto us. Israel's stunning victories over Jericho and Ai, had awakened the Canaanites all over the land. Now, they had heard, of course, they remembered the crossing of the Red Sea, and they knew of the defeat of the the kings of the Amorites over in Transjordan, or what is today Jordan. And, of course, they knew of the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. And yet, it's getting closer to home. Jericho has been captured miraculously. Ai has been captured miraculously. And then so these people are becoming more and more awake to the fact that Israel's here. We'd better prepare. And although the obvious miracles of God on behalf of the Israelites had disheartened the Canaanites, the scripture keeps telling us that they were disheartened, that their hearts melted from within them. But the word of total annihilation of the population, if you heard that, yeah, the enemy is coming and the enemy is unstoppable, but when you hear that when they take your city, they wipe out everybody, <laughs> even with a, with a melted heart, you're going to get a little gumption up and do what you can to stop the attack of the, of the enemy. And so this stirs up a desperate defense on their part. What can we do, you know? What can we do? Now, as we have noted before, although there were several different nations living within the land of Canaan, They are generally or frequently in Scripture grouped together under either the term Canaanite or the term Amorite. And so sometimes they're specifically spelled out, as as some of them are mentioned in that first verse, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Hittite, and so forth. Uh, The the term Canaanite and Amorite are generally used, although actually, technically, the Hittites in no way are related to Canaanites or Amorites. They're a totally different race of people. Uh, Who are headquartered clear up in what is modern day Turkey today. So often they are are mentioned separately, but these others are often lumped together. And so we'll see that. We'll see that even further as we go uh, on through this uh, ninth and into the tenth chapters of Joshua. From what they had heard of the Israelite invasion so far, the Canaanites knew that they were not going to be able to defend themselves if they fought separately, each little town trying to fight against Israel. There wasn't any way it was going to happen. Therefore, they hoped that if they could put together an alliance, enough cities joining together, fielding a large enough army, somehow they would have a better chance for survival. And and often in history, that has worked out, of course. For example, when the Persians invaded Greece, the Greek cities would join together and they'd field a a, a unified army in, in spite of the fact that the Greek cities often were at war with each other. And with that unified army, they were able to slow down the Persians, and in the long run, they were uh, finally able to defeat them uh, back in the 5th century before Christ. But, of course, the the X factor here is God. Uh, We we don't know from history whether God favored Persians or Greeks. They were both pagan people. (laughs) Didn't make a whole lot of difference, it would seem. But in this case, we're dealing with pagans versus the people of God. And so, these first two verses we're reading about here give us a general background, so they're better able to understand the next few chapters in the book of Joshua. Because as we read in that uh, in those first two verses, we're told that the people that lived in the hill country, the people that lived in what what's called the lowland here, which is sort of it's called the Shephelah. It's uh, it's an area with valleys and small little hills that finally taper out into the coastal plain. And so you have those three regions, four when you count the Jordan Valley. As you go in a cross section across the land of Israel, the coastal plain, the Shephelah, sort of a rolling hill country, and then the higher hill country, and then you drop off, of course, into the Jordan Valley. And, and that would be a, a cross section uh, of the land. And that uh, all but the Jordan Valley is being referred to here. And it says they gathered themselves together with one accord. Now, actually, there will be two separate alliances. In, in, uh, in the ninth and 10th chapter, you, you deal primarily with the southern alliance. Then we'll be talking about later and a northern alliance that Joshua and Israel have to deal with. So let's read on here in the ninth chapter. When the inhabitant, beginning at verse three, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took wor- worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet, and worn out clothes on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and had begun to crumble. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you're living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion of Heshbon, to Og king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth." So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, to go and meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. This, is our, this our bread was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. Now, behold, it is dry and has become crumbled. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and behold, they are torn. And these clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. This passage helps us to see, as so many passages of Scripture do, do, that God is not the God of the whitewash. God does not cover up the sins of his people. He exposes them, not to humiliate his people, but to teach us, and to teach those who will read the word of the Lord. Gibeon. Gibeon is the town that is the focus of this remaining portion of this chapter. Gibeon is, um, the site of Gibeon is undisputed today. There's a great well at Gibeon where you can actually go down to the level uh, stairways that go down into a, a, a deep well there at Gibeon. Uh, there is, of course, a modern Air, Arab village there. But Gibeon was located and is today, well, today it's not quite so far away from Jerusalem, not because the earth has shrunk together, but because Jerusalem has expanded all over the place. Oh, David and Solomon, what would they say if they saw Jerusalem today? <laughs> they couldn't believe it. There are more people living in Jerusalem than there were in Israel when David was king. Jerusalem is spread all over the landscape. Even the old walled city of Jerusalem, which you would see if you went there today, was much larger than David and Solomon's uh, Jerusalem, or the Jerusalem that's going to be referred to in this passage of Scripture. But Gibeon was located about seven miles southwest of Ai, and a a like distance uh, northwest of Jerusalem. Um, its location was very important because it was located at a juncture. And what is very interesting today is that there is, a, there is a main highway that runs north out of Jerusalem, and there is a main crossroad right there at Gibeon, today even. And at the day we're talking about, although Palestine was not itself one of the great trading cities of the ancient world, it was a crossroads. It was a crossroads. And the Via Maris, we've talked about this before, which was the main road that ran from Damascus to the Egyptian Delta, came across and ran down the the, uh, Palestinian coast. And the Via Maris had a main connector, a trunk line, that ran across over to Jericho and into the Jordan Valley and it went right through Gibeon. So Gibeon was an important transportation center. It was a large city it was larger than Ai and, and possibly even larger than, than Jericho. The people who inhabited the city were known as Hivites. Now, according to Genesis 10, the Hivites were descended from Ham's son, Canaan. And of course, this land is known for Han, Ham's son, Canaan. And therefore, all the people who lived, who, who, who were descended from Canaan were Canaanites. And the land occupied by the Canaanites became Canaan. And therefore, if you moved into the land of Canaan, you became a Canaanite, even if you weren't descended from Canaan. Right? It's like if you move from Canada to America and and you become a naturalized citizen, you become an American, even though you weren't originally an American. And and so the term Canaan Canaan and Canaanite becomes a little bit uh, fuzzy in terms of actual ethnicity. The Hivites, however, were ethnically descended from Canaan. The term Canaanite is a broad term, but we're talking about people who more narrowly were specifically of the subunit, the clan, if you will, of the Hivites. Now, their homeland, as best as those who have studied this in detail can determine, their original homeland was in Lebanon. But certain groups migrated south from Lebanon, and one group settled at Shechem, and another group settled at Gibeon and its environs. What is interesting about this is, and what has sometimes caused Scripture to be criticized, is the fact that tribal names are mentioned in areas where historians have not known those tribes to exist. But but these people often migrated, and, and they often migrated as a clan, And move to a new site. Why? Well, possibly for the same reasons we might migrate. Most of the reasons we migrate are economic. I mean, we know the whole story about Naomi, right? And the the book of Ruth is all about an economic situation that caused Naomi and and, and her family to move over to Moab. And and then, when things got better back where they originally came from, they migrated back. And so, Hivites were living in Shechem and Gibeon because, apparently, economic conditions in Lebanon had forced them to move south. When we talked about Ebal and Gerizim, the two mountains near the city of Shechem, I alluded to the first encounter between Israel and the Hivites, and it was not a good encounter. Let me just go back and refresh our minds on that from the 34th chapter of Genesis. One of the tragedies, of course, of the, of the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 34, let's just look at the first two verses. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. And you remember the story uh, from that came The destruction of the Hivite males in the city of Shechem by Simeon and Levi, two of the sons of Jacob, because they had this man who was the son of the king had raped their sister, their half-sister in many instances, depending. She was the daughter of Leah, so six of her brothers were full brothers, and six of her brothers were half-brothers. Yeah, Simeon and and, and Levi were full brothers. And so they led the attack. So the initial encounter between the sons of Jacob and and the Hivites was not a good encounter. Now, I don't necessarily think that the people at Gibeon either knew anything about that or it's possible they did or were even thinking about that at this juncture. But they had heard of the destruction of Jericho and of the destruction of Ai, and they did not want to follow in those steps And you can't blame them. They felt that their city would probably be next or close to next on Joshua's hit list. And so they wanted to do something about it. They were desperate to find some way to save themselves. And if you're desperate, you will do almost anything. And if you're a Canaanite, meaning that your morality is different from the Israelites because you worship pagan gods, there's almost no door closed to you. Now, God had given to Israel a brilliant ruse by which they were able to destroy Ai and Bethel. Satan, not to be outdone, whispered into the ears, I'm sure, of the Gibeonite leaders this plan. Satan is a very intelligent being. You know, sometimes we say, stupid devil. The devil is not stupid. He may do some things that we view as being uh, rather uh, incoherent, but he has a plan, and he is a very intelligent being. After all, God created him as the highest of all his created beings in terms of power and glory and beauty before he collapsed into his self-worship. So this ruse, which we read about in this passage, was well-planned and well-executed. Although as I was reading that passage there in the chapter 9, uh, the thought crossed my mind that they protest too much <laughs> about pointing out how their bread is old and their wineskins are old. and you know, Rather than just letting the Israelites discover it, they're, they're pointing it out to them, you know, which, you know, if you think about that for a minute, Sounds planned. Now think about, what had God just done for Israel and for Joshua in the issue of Achan? Here you have all these soldiers. Somebody has swiped some stuff that belongs to God in the attack of Jericho. How in the world do we to find out who that one person is? And of course, we, we know how God led Joshua in the search And Sherlock Holmes (laughs) would have been very envious of the means by which Joshua isolated the individual very quickly because of God's divine revelation. So there's absolutely no excuse for Joshua here and the elders of Israel for being sucked into this masquerade, no matter how intelligent Satan might be. The key to Israel's failure here is, as I stressed, I thought at least when I was doing the reading, at the end of verse 14, or, or verse 14, so the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask counsel from the Lord. I think over the failures of God's people historically, throughout history, those words could be written. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. They, of course, closely questioned the Gibeonites. They said to them, well, you may be from nearby and you're just trying to trick us. You see, the thought was in their minds. But the Gibeonites, of course, did everything they could to disabuse them of that thought. They closely inspected their their food and their wineskins, their sandals, their clothing. Oh, my, look. Who who would ever go on a journey with old stuff like this? Obviously. (laughs) They've come a long way. Obviously. You see, they were convinced that they had the power to make the judgment. In their own strength and their own wisdom, we don't need to bother God with this. We can do it. We can do it. And of course, before we uh, lay too much at the feet of Joshua, we need to look at the mirror, in the mirror. How often do we think we can do it? Now, we have to realize there was a certain pride factor here. They wanted to believe That their fame was so widespread that people were coming from afar to make peace with them. Look at, they're afraid of us and they're coming from 500 miles away. How powerful we are that our fame has spread so far. Maybe the kings of Mesopotamia are cringing at the thought of us. Maybe even the Persians are afraid of us. It was only, we don't know exactly the time frame, but it could not have been too many days before that Israel had stood <laughs> at, in, in the valley between Ebal and Gerizim. And they had echoed back, you know, uh, the, the God wills it theme uh, to the list of the blessings and the list of the cursings and, and, and Joshua had inscribed the law on a lime on lime uh, covered stone there in the valley and they had sworn to live by it they committed themselves wholeheartedly to god and now they have turned from god confidence to self-confidence it can happen like that It can happen to us like that now we can stand in a service and sing praises to god and walk out the door and fall flat on our face So so this passage is a powerful warning to us. And you probably could find many ways, but I'd like to highlight at least two ways that this is a warning to us. Satan can come as an angel of light. And I think this is borne out in the records that you read of the NDEs, the near-death experiences that so many people claim to have had. And there's a commonality to them in which many people protest of going down some, some like, like a tunnel towards this bright light and this, this figure which is outlined in the light and, and, and they feel a warm, glowing sensation and they're drawn towards this figure and they don't want to come back and then the nasty doctor revives them. They ought to thank their, quote, lucky stars that, got, that the doctor did revive them because most of these people who have these These dreams have no faith in Jesus Christ. They have never darkened the door of the church in their lives. So who's drawing them? It's not Jesus. Unless we walk closely with the Lord and are constantly seeking direction from His Word as it's expounded to us by the Spirit of God, we can be taken in just as Joshua was. Paul, in in the New Testament, writing about warnings concerning the cult concerning concerning cults, gave us some rather important uh, insight. I'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Earlier in the chapter, Paul was warning the people about hearing individuals preach about another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. I don't know of a day and age where we need that warning more than we need it today because there are different gospels everywhere. But in verse 13, Paul goes on to say, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. However, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Things are not always as they might appear. The, the Gibeonites appeared to have come from a long way off. I'm sure they, they, they stayed up a, a few nights without going to sleep, so they'd look pretty weary and exhausted. And of course, they donned all these dirty clothes and, and, and used old wineskins and bread that was already on the verge and, and brought all this stuff with them. It's almost as if they had been schooled in Hollywood. And Joshua was taken in. The man of God, the man who had stood in the presence of a theophany, the man who had heard the word of the Lord over and over again, was taken in. If God's best if I want to, and that's not a good term to use, but, but if those who have who've had the closest experience with God can be taken in, that's a powerful warning to us. Paul further goes on in Galatians to say in the first chapter of Galatians, he, he makes it very clear that the, the only way that you and I are going to avoid being taken in by false apostles, by those that come inspired by the angel of light, is that we must know and adhere to the truth. Paul says in verse 6 of Galatians 1, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have already preached to you, let him be anathema, cursed. Even though we come back someday and give you a different gospel, curse us. Because the gospel we've given you now is the truth. And if somehow we become perverted and come back and give you another gospel later, it's a false gospel even if an angel from heaven, as it were, should come. I wonder if Joseph Smith ever read that passage or any of the others. There are a lot of people within the framework of churches down through history who have claimed to have heard from angels. And often their claim does not square with Scripture. Sometimes they say they're told to do something, which if you look at who Jesus is, is not something Jesus would do. God told me through an angel to slay this man because he is an antichrist. Really? Is that what God told you to do? There's an awful lot of hate in America that, that is, is emanating from those who call themselves true believers in Jesus Christ. And you'll go a long way through Scripture to find where the Scripture teaches us that we're to hate our enemies. Because what did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Do good to them. Is it loving your enemy if, if you shoot him with a high-powered rifle through a window, you know, just because he's doing something you don't feel is moral? I don't think so. It's a false gospel, and so many are taken in. I, I can't even remember the number now, but the newest uh, Christianity Today talks a lot about of, uh, tolerance and intolerance, but it talks about how so many people today are moving in and out of so many cultic movements and that the number of cultic movements is is growing almost exponentially right now. They're just appearing all over the landscape. And people are being drawn in. Now, in, in many cases, they're just hopscotching from one cult to the other. Same people. But other people are being drawn in. And what's interesting is so often they come from mainline churches. I've mentioned this to you before. But Walter Martin tells us, that the vast majority of people who became Jehovah's Witnesses were either Catholics or Baptists before they became Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, it's not that Catholics or Baptists are any more prone to that kind of thinking. It's just that there is a cultural Baptist Baptist group. I mean, Baptist Baptist churches are the largest church in America of the Protestant sect. And there's, of course, 200 varieties of Baptists. But, and the Catholic Church is, is even larger, and, and so many of them, it's a cultural thing. It's, it's not at all a real thing. I used to work with the Bank of America, and so many of the people I worked with were Baptists, or, you know, they belonged to a Baptist church or a Methodist Episcopal church, and they sang in the choir and taught Sunday school, and yet when you hear them talk and, and, and what they say about their lives, you, you know it's a cultural thing, in the case of these individuals, at least. I'm not saying that blanketly, but of these particular individuals, uh, because their their lives do not square with the teachings of Scripture as to someone who would protest to be a follower of Christ. Secondly, it, it is often when we think we are standing strong and that victory is ours that we're in greatest danger of being deceived. The reason is the same for us as it is, as it was for Israel. That is, we can become self-dependent rather than God-dependent. That's easy to do in America because all of America was built upon self-dependence. I'm a self-made man. You know, we, we are a rugged individualism. We, we go out to the frontier and we win this 160 this acres for ourselves and we beat off the Indians and beat off the wolves and, and we establish ourselves here and we did it. And, of course, that tradition has led to really probably one of the most violent cultures ever to exist on the planet. Uh, I was just looking at a statistic the other day that, you know, in terms of actual New York City, talking about its its city limits, not metropolitan New York, but actual New York City itself, uh, New York City and London are almost identically the same size in terms of population. And yet, New York has 10 times as many homicides as does London. And, of course, it has to do with the fact we have a tradition of violence in this country. And, you know, it's the old Wild West thing. Pow! You know, shoot first, ask questions later. And and that goes all the way back to the early uh, colonization when we had to fight against the wild Indians. And it kind of just engraved into our culture the, the, the fact, and, of course, it's in our Constitution, that we have the right to bear arms. You know, I've thought about this. I'm not making any statement about guns here personally. But, you know, I've thought about this and, and the fact that how difficult is it to actually murder a person if you have to stand nose to nose with them and strangle them or stab them or do something where you, you're, you're in physical contact with them, rather as standing 50 yards away and shooting at them, you know, from around a corner where it's kind of depersonalized. It's a lot easier to do. And I think that's why it happens um, in America so much more. Lois and I got to watch a film the other night called Escape from Sobibar. Some of you probably saw it or have seen it before, which tells about the only massive Jewish escape from a death camp in World War II and how difficult it was for these Jews who had no experience in killing anybody to kill the people they needed to do in order to escape. I mean, it was almost impossible for them. And, and, and even when it was a matter of life and death for them, they could hardly bring themselves to kill this person who was, in effect, threatening them. And, and that's really the natural human condition. And yet, it can become so easy under certain circumstances. Israel, in this moment, chose to depend upon themselves rather than to depend upon God. Let me read this verse from Second Corinthians 12.10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is a very difficult verse. It's easy to say, and we like that last phrase, but the whole verse is very difficult verse because I am content with weakness. Am I? I don't think most of the time I am. I don't want to be weak. With insults. Oh, yeah, I like insults. Right. With distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. You know, for, for many of us, if we weren't true believers, it would be easy, or at least easier, to shoot drugs, take drink, or, or do whatever to get, you know, to numb yourself to these kinds of things. But Paul is in effect welcoming these things because when they come, they force us to turn from self-dependence because obviously what is self-dependence doing for us? It's getting us insults and distresses and persecutions and what, what is it going to profit us? We, we can't win our way out of this. We must depend upon God. And so when I am weak, then I am strong because it's his strength in me. But that's really, really hard to do to quote as, as, as we, as the concept comes in Scripture, to do as Christ did, which was to empty himself, to empty ourselves, of ourselves, and let Christ fill us. Because Christ's way, we like, I, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say we, but I like, you know, the attitude that two of the disciples had, call fire down on them, Lord. <laughs> he says, you don't know what a spirit you are. Because that is not God's spirit. God's spirit is gentle. He works through the weak vessels. He accomplishes his way in in, in ways that we wouldn't if we were God. We'd say, fry them, you know. But God doesn't work that way. He gave the Amorites 400 more years. And, you know, we're really wrestling with these these terrible things that are coming in America, but maybe God's going to give America 400 more years to become worse, as the Amorites did. God is not referred to as a fortress, a mighty rock, a high tower for nothing. Because it is in Him that we find our strength and our protection and our deliverance, not in the fact that we become you know, spiritual muscled people, you know. The, uh, you know, it's kind of offensive sometimes when you hear certain individuals, preachers, who come on the radio or television or whatever else, and and they, they kind of talk about kicking the devil around, spitting in his face and doing all these things in themselves. When the scripture tells us in Jude that even Michael dared not rail against the devil on his own. He said the Lord rebuke you. When we acknowledge our weaknesses we cast ourselves upon the Lord. And in so doing we become strong. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Some people stop with the first part of the verse. I can do all things. No, no, no. Because only God can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And sometimes the things he wants us to do are not the things that we in our flesh want to do because they're humiliating, because they seem to be doormatish. Joshua should have been particularly wary of making a binding agreement on such a magnitude without consulting the one who was his Lord. (laughs) Israel had had to walk hand in hand with God 40 years through the wilderness and daily receive sustenance from Him. So now we're going to do it on our own. We have to think about it, though. It was pretty heady stuff for a people who had been known only as Egyptian slaves to now be treated as if they were major players in the Eastern Mediterranean. We have come from afar because we have heard of your fame and we have come to submit ourselves to you and make a treaty that you won't hurt us. Whoa. (laughs) Are we somebody or what? You know? That day in Gilgal, as the Israelites celebrated their first major act of international diplomacy, the Gibeonites were congratulating themselves for a brilliant diplomatic maneuvering, and Satan was in the background laughing his head off. Got him, got him. Well, we'll move on to this cha- in this chapter next time, and we need to discover a truth that is very, very important that comes out of this chapter. And let me just give you a preview of it, and we'll develop it in more detail on next Sunday. And that is, God will allow us to fail, and God will allow the consequences of that failure to be persistent and even permanent.